I think we're live. Okay. Okay. I'm Sherry Falkenheimer. Thank you for coming. I think you know the title of my talk. We want to talk about cross-cultural issues in teaching internationally. You can see I'm a perpetual student. Uh, since this is a CME granting, I believe uh, I have nothing to disclose. Nobody's paying me to do this. And I'd like to acknowledge a friend of mine from my PhD program, Mary Later Leitner, who wrote uh, the book Cross-Cultural Partnerships. And uh, she graciously loaned me some of her slides, so I didn't have to make new ones. You've probably all heard the, the term worldview. And uh, sometimes it's a little unclear what's meant by that. So I just wanted to be sure everyone had a good idea of what it is. It's basically when you're a kid... What you learn about the world from everybody around you, things in your culture, what are the values, what are the beliefs. And so, depending where you grow up, you might see things very differently. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why, some of the cultural differences. But because that's all you know as a child and as you grow up, that's the way you look at things, the filter you use. Uh, as you get educated or meet people from other situations, that may change. But uh, that's your basic uh, view of the world and uh, modifiable, but it's hard to totally change it. Uh, the biggest change is coming to Christ, of course, that uh, really transforms you to the biblical worldview, hopefully. So I like to do this interactively. Um, how many of you have taught in other cultures? Oh, terrific. How many of you have people from other cultures in your classes in the States? Okay, so that probably takes in almost everybody. So hopefully you have some real experiences you can share with each other and, and with the group. We want this to be uh, learning from each other. I don't have all the information or all the answers. So please uh, feel free. It's a safe classroom. We won't be criticizing anyone, and we'd like to have you contribute. So let's start by uh, get together in groups of two to four and uh, think, talk about this question. What the first time you were in another culture, or some time you can recall, what was a major difference you noted? How did you react to it? And why do you think you reacted the way you did? So I'll give you about five minutes. So go ahead. <laughs> about one more minute. Okay, let's uh, come back together. And uh, you paired and you shared different things. Hopefully you learned some different uh, experiences people had and maybe got some ideas that you weren't familiar with. But it would be great if some of you would be willing to share uh, one of the things that you brought up with the group. So who would be willing to uh, share something? Okay, just a moment. Morgan will bring the... Mike, are you? Thank you. Hi, I'm Sean. I teach uh, internal medicine at Kansas University uh, in Wichita. And as I was speaking with um, uh, Valeria, Vel 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 um, what came up with sometimes I like to use jokes, some kind of some lighthearted jokes in my teaching or um, try to get people to, to smile and make the, envir the teaching environment feel light and safe and but I, I have some students who come from the Middle East, 
And I notice that sometimes when I do say those jokes or say some things that get people to smile or laugh, oftentimes there's this rigid look on their face. And, and I'm like, you know, did I tell a bad joke? Or was it not very funny? Or, but what I, what I surmise is, for some people, that's not how learning is. Um, it's not supposed to be this thing where you laugh and you, you know, smile, but just, just you know, take the information in and, and that's it. So I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've, I've perceived in some of my classes. So. Thank you. That's a great example because humor is very cultural. And that's one thing I've, I actually forgot to put on the slides. But when you teach in other cultures, I'd really encourage you not to use jokes because it can be taken very differently. Um, you know, Middle Easterners, for example, if they grew up largely in Quranic-type schools where it's very hierarchical, it's not a place you smile and, and that kind of thing. And I heard a story which I think is a really good one, an example of this too. There was a, an American was teaching in Japan and started out by telling a joke. And of course it had to be uh, interpreted. So the interpreter said, no, he told the joke and everybody laughed. And uh, he found out later that what the interpreter said was not telling the joke but saying, I think that was supposed to be a joke, so please laugh. <laughs> so when you have an interpreter and you don't know the other language, you don't know what they're saying, but they want to be very polite to you. And so that's a, another kind, but I'd really encourage you not to use humor if it's not your first culture or in a mixed, mixed one, unless it's, you know, saying something about yourself. But, yeah, you do have to be careful with humor. That's an excellent example. I didn't even think to put that on. What other examples would you like to give us? Some, uh, something you thought was different in another culture and how you reacted. Just the basics way of just communicating. And, oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. We just want the people online to hear you. They can hear. Oh, they can? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought we needed to use it. Okay. Hi. <laughs> so just the basic ways that we take for granted what body language means. So... Um, there are cultures that even yes or no are not presented in the same way. I was working with refugees, and one of them kept clicking her tongue at me. When I would ask a medical question, I had no idea what it meant. And they're like, oh, she's telling you. I believe it was yes, but she's telling you yes or no. So we take for granted what we present and how we say what we say. Yes, body language is very important, and symbols we use, like okay or something, they can be very offensive in some cultures, or, or victory. Uh, President Nixon once did that. <laughs> it made the front page of the newspaper in another culture. So uh, it's, be careful how you uh, move and what, not only what you say, but, you know, how you, uh, you know, how you move and uh, what symbols you use and uh, that kind of thing. Anything else? Any other examples people want to share? Okay, well, hopefully you got the idea. There, there are lots of differences. When I was 16, I went to Germany uh, to visit my pen pal. I knew German to some extent. And uh, I thought, oh, it's not going to be very different. You know, it's a Western country. But it just seemed to me like everything smelled different. The food was really different. When I went to bed, they had these fluffy things on the bed. And 
didn't know you were supposed to sleep on top of them, or are they the covers, or, you know, just things that seem so stupid, you know, you don't even know how to go to bed in Germany, but, uh, <laughs> but it can be little things, and it can be very confusing, so I want to mostly do case studies and have you interact, and I'll reinforce some points, but here's the first case study, uh, have any of you taught medical schools overseas? Okay, good. So you know, you know, a lot of medical schools are like this. Um, medical, you are went, go and you observe a medical school in a non-Western country, where they enter medical school right out of high school for six years, uh, in spite of the fact that international publications and recommendations uh, are to use adult learning methods, interaction like we're doing. Uh, to train healthcare professionals, you notice the first four years are just lecture with no interaction between students and faculty. The students take notes, memorize the material, and are given written tests on it, basically regurgitating it. The last two years, students follow a faculty member on rounds, observe their examination of patients, and are told the diagnosis and appropriate treatment by the faculty member. They graduate with little hands-on experience or practice in differential diagnosis. And you judge this to be an outdated, poor educational system. So why do you think these traditional methods may have remained unchanged, even though there are international recommendations, not just Western groups recommending they be changed? What are some cultural factors? Power distance and hierarchy, yes, definitely. In, uh, in our culture, we like to be fairly egalitarian. Students should, are safe to approach us and that kind of thing. In other cultures, there's a huge distance. And even when we go as expats, we usually have to either teach the faculty or the students. But it's hard to get them both together because they're, it's kind of like, you know, teaching the president versus the commoner in the street. You know, it's, it can be a huge dis difference. Good. What other things? Yes. Right. I mean, that's the way they've done it. We've always done it this way. Why should we change this? Because the people, a few people in other countries say we should change. It's also easier to not change because you don't have to to do anything new. What else? Different people learn different ways. Yes. Different people learn have different learning styles. Even here, I think that's been fairly recent that we've really recognized that. Some are oral learners, some are uh, visual learners, some are sensory learners. There's a whole, uh, a whole literature on that. Rebecca? Yes. Right. Very good. Yeah. In, uh, we're what's um, we're a uh, guilt guilt uh, truth culture, I guess it's usually said. Where uh, you know we are pretty comfortable uh, with discussion and that kind of thing. But in a shame honor culture, if something happens that makes you look bad or shames you, it has a huge impact. And I'll have some slides on that too. What else? Even if they do speak whatever language you can apply fluently, 
Right. So especially if we go and teach somewhere in English uh, where it's not their native language, even if they study in English, like the Middle East learns medicine in English, uh, India, Pakistan, if it's not a language they're really used to, it's hard to for them to discuss. And even if people speak English, you know, there's a lot of Englishes. You might not understand their accent. Uh, you may not understand their implication, you know, as you would with your home group. Yes. Right, yeah. In the way that, you know, every, every culture does group work in a different way. Yes. We think that we're very egalitarian as a culture, but if you looked at someone more like Denmark, we look like we're not very egalitarian in how we work. Yeah, so, you know, it's a variable egalitarian versus hierarchical, and they're very different levels in different countries, and... Uh, depending on your culture and their culture, that can be a barrier. I think sometimes it's like you have to pay your dues. It's almost like an initiation. Like you have to prove your worth, you have to pay your dues. You have to go through that initiation. I think that's yeah, it's a good point. You know, you're, you're new. They don't know you. They may or may not know something about your culture. And why should they listen to you? You know, um, do you have any credibility? Uh, you probably noticed I had a bunch of degrees, and I had a discussion with Morgan about that. But one reason I got a Ph.D. is in a lot of countries, uh, an M.D. is seen as a spoon-feeding degree, and you don't have that much credibility. And as a woman, in a lot of the places we go, I often teach with CMDA's Medical Education International. A lot of countries, uh, women don't have a very high uh, social worth either. But if you have a Ph.D., they're like, wow, this person did research. They really know something. So I did it partly because I lead teams to those kind of places, and it gives me a lot more credibility. And also I did it because I had I was in the military too, and I had the so-called GI Bill, and uh, it has to be a degree program for them to pay. And they paid half of my Ph.D., which was a lot of money. So there were a couple reasons. But uh, that's a cultural thing too. You know, here people think an M.D. is a pretty good degree, you know. But I would say I'm a doctor squared. People think I'm square anyway, <laughs> which they wouldn't get in a lot of cultures. But you know what that means. <laughs> any other, uh, any other comments on this case? Well, I think uh, one one thing that's common in a lot of countries is medical schools don't have full time faculty, or they have a lot of people who are told. You're going to be a faculty and you're going to teach this course, but you're not going to get paid. You still have to do whatever you do to make a living. So they may not like to teach. They may not be good teachers. And they're not getting rewarded for it. So, you know, there's no incentive to put in more time. If you got your lecture and you can use that every year, maybe tweak it a little bit. But you don't have to be sure you're up on articles the students might bring up and that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of places, they have no experience. You know, I... It was in this group, I think, I talked about the problem-based learning, wasn't it? Oh, maybe not. Uh, we were asked to teach problem-based learning in South Asia. The government had told all of the medical schools that they had to use problem-based learning, but they didn't tell them what that was or give them any training. So there was a long-term worker <coughs> there, and um, he said to the faculty, and fortunately it was a young faculty, so they were pretty flexible. He said, would you like me to 
See if I could bring some people to teach you about problem-based learning. They're like, oh, yes. So, you know, we not only <clears throat> excuse me, did we go, but God provided two people from McMaster University. And if you know anything about problem-based learning, that's where it started. That's like Mecca coming to you for free when they charge five or $10,000 a week for their course. So that gave great, great credibility. And we, uh, you know, we talk, talked about what it is. We uh, modeled it, and then we had them practice it with us, mentoring them. So, you know, it can be uh, just something they have no idea what it is and how to use that method, just because we recommend, you know, even like role play. I remember when I was doing my research, talking to some Eastern Europeans who had taken this course I was uh, asking about, and they're like, role play, wow, I had never seen that. That really changed my life. It was great. You know, it seems so obvious. Uh, also, it takes more preparation to do certain kinds of teaching than to just give your lecture. So uh, if you're not getting rewarded, that makes sense. Uh, we talked basically a little bit about power distance. I have a little bit on that. Oh, uh, before we go on to power distance, uh, I also wanted to mention there are some good things about being a good memorizer. You know, I wish I could memorize the Bible like some people memorize medical stuff in other countries. They're just really good, and there's some stuff you want to memorize. You don't want to be, you know, in the emergency room, there's a trauma case, and you're like, what were those steps in ATLS again? You know, what do I do when somebody has a heart attack? You know, there, there's, uh, there's value in knowing material and being able to discuss it. Of course, you hopefully you want to understand it too. And uh, we already talked about uh, there's absence of faculty training, and I'll talk more about power distance, collectivist cultures, and the conceptive con phase. We've touched on all of them. If you're not familiar with power distance, it's basically uh, the degree to which uh, the more powerful members of a group or an institution in a community accept uh, that power is distributed unevenly, and the people accept that too. So it's like in a tribe, if there's a chief, everyone else follows the chief. They don't, uh, you know, try to have a coup d'etat and get rid of the chief or, or rebel against it. That's how life is. That's what you do. And here's a, a little bit more, uh, give you a little bit more uh, discrimination about it. Uh, high power distance, or it's also called large power distance, is when it's very hierarchical and there's a great distance between the top person and the top levels and the lower ones. And so they have clear distinctions which group you're in. And uh, even people who are close to each other may have different uh, social power. And then the low power distance or small is more like the West, where we say at least we're equal and egalitarian, and uh, most people are seen as close to each other in power. They're, we value equality, supposedly, although it varies here, too, within the group and the location. Or here's another way to look at it. On the left, uh, the low power distance values equality and independence, and the high power distance, uh, respect and authority, and people being dependent on the leader and seeing them as wise. And uh, power and status is gained in two ways. One is ascribed, like uh, uh, if you're Prince Charles and you have a son, that person is ascribed prince. Uh, level and will become the king of England sometime. It isn't up for a vote. Uh, it's the same in tribes. You know, they have their 
descent of who's going to be the next tribal leader or different uh, cultures, where achieved is accomplishments and what you do. And that's what I was kind of talking about with doing a PhD. You know, I gain more honor in cultures where I have to be a leader, even where women are not as recognized as leaders, and it helps me to be able to function more effectively. And when you're in a culture that has a high power distance, even if you want to be egalitarian and call each other by your first names and things, that'll often be pretty formal with you. And I've learned that we should accept that. You know, I used to fight against it, but, you know, they mean it as a, a sign of respect and things for you. So we're uncomfortable with it, but so when I write back to them, I don't call them Dr. Nagu, I call them, you know, uh, dear professor doctor, whatever their last name is, not use their first name. So uh, I think it's wise to accept it as you get to know each other. You'll probably come to a compromise in social situations alone. It may go away, but uh, that was, was very challenging for me, you know. Uh, and then we talked a little about, I think Rebecca mentioned individualism versus collectivism. This is a, a similar concept where we think we should all make our own decisions. Uh, we're, we're the basic institution uh, of society. We should be independent. We should uh, have our own goals. If we uh, listen to anybody, it's usually our nuclear family. We don't think of all of our cousins and great-grandfathers and that kind of thing. And uh, it's easy to move away from your family, go out on your own. Uh, be creative and competitive, which is not encouraged in a lot of societies. And uh, we often see it as embarrassing to be in need. We don't like to say we need help, which uh, I've learned can really help your relationships even in this country with neighbors and things. You know, I'm single. I live alone. I have no children. And so sometimes I'll ask a guy, you know, to help me with something I can't lift or or a neighbor to uh, do something. And it often really improves the relationship. We get to connect. Nobody wants to always be on the receiving end. Uh, and usually I try to do something in return, bake them some bread or whatever. But I think it's something we can learn from collectivist cultures, uh, not to be too individualistic. Collectivist cultures see themselves as a group. Uh, they'll often be a very extended family, maybe the whole tribe, it may be everyone related to them, even to several uh, branches or several levels of cousins and that kind of thing. And some cultures, does anybody here speak Korean? Oh, good. Well, you can tell me if this is true. Somebody told me that in Korea, it's very hard to say I, that you pretty much always use a term for we, that you don't have a lot of pronouns for I, me. Is that true? Okay, so see, that's a very different thing. So they're really thinking themselves as part of a, a group, not an individual. And uh, children, like, just like here, they learn how to act by watching other people and get their ideas from the leaders. Uh, if you have dissenting views or you bring up an a item that causes stress, uh, they're often looked down on or seen as a rebel or somebody with a weak character. And they'll go to a big extent to support their group, even, you know, distant relatives. And they find their fulfillment in being rewarded and being part, accepted as part of that group and seeing, being seen as a valuable member of the group. And elderly are given a great respect there. We used to have that more here. 
Even when I was a child, there was more. Even my mom was a nurse, and she always said, oh, we should be so respectful when we go to the doctor. So when I went to medical school, I was like, oh, i got to talk to doctors. You know? I was really stressed out, and then uh, I became one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. Now, in our culture, we're, we're much more informal. And even though I hit the big 7-0 in July, I don't get more respect for hitting that. So. <laughs> Oops. And uh, even people who are highly educated often, you know, pretty much stay to these kinds of values. That doesn't change you into an individualist in these cultures. In my Ph.D. training, there were a lot of students from Korea. And it's hard sometimes to get them to interact in class because it's not really encouraged, I guess, in their system or at least in some parts of it. And uh, they really give a lot to their community. And their security is in relationships. And this is especially true in poor places. You know, they don't have much. All they have is relationships. And if they're in need or they have trouble, it's that group that will help them. But, of course, if they make money and they do well, the whole family expects them to help out, too. So, you know, it's a mixed blessing in some ways. But only relationships can protect you. And so loyalty is very valuable. Where in the West, it tends to be more money-oriented. If you have enough money, you can take care of yourself. You don't need other people. You shouldn't ask them to help and that kind of thing. So this can cause uh, a lot of misunderstandings when one group is working with another. And I think a suggestion that was made this morning in the group about uh, transitioning to national leadership in uh, institutions and things if you don't understand it or it seems like it's causing a problem, don't ignore it. Talk to somebody you know who uh, is a safe person and tell them, when this happened, this is what I thought. Is this the right interpretation? And uh, he said, you know, he was often told, no, that isn't even close to what really happened. You know, so you need a cultural informer or two. But uh, you want to do it in a respectful way, and hopefully they'll do that with us too when they come here. So uh, because of time, we won't uh, do, take time to do interaction on this. But think about where you've seen individualism and collectivism, uh, where you live or where you've traveled, and how it might be impacting you and uh, your organization you're working with. Uh, when I was a kid, my whole street was white, uh, Anglo-Saxon kind of people. There was only one African-American family in our high school. And now my street, I live on the same street I, I live, lived in as a child now. Uh, we have two Pakistani families. We have mixed-race families. We have Caribbean people. We have African-American people. So it's very mixed. And you don't have to go anywhere to start learning about other cultures. You just talk to your neighbors, spend a little time with them, and you can learn a lot about cultural differences, especially those of you who haven't gotten to go long-term anywhere and are looking at long-term missions, working with international students or reaching out to refugees or neighbors from different cultures can be very enlightening. And then we talked a little bit about the concept of faith. This is sort of related to uh, hierarchical systems, but it's a shame-honor culture where you get honor, you're ascribed honor as you, uh, you know, achieve things and things, but if you lose it, it doesn't just affect you, it affects your whole family. I, when I read about uh, honor killing, if you're not familiar with that, that's when, for example, in the Middle East, if a woman, a single woman is perceived as flirting with a guy, 
her family may kill her or send somebody to kill her. And I was like, how can murder uh, be less bad than perceived flirting? You know, it just seemed like a penalty way out of whack from the offense. But if you understand that, you know, if the community feels that woman is immoral, the whole family may not be able to do business in the community. They uh, are looked down on. It's like being an outcast. And so those kinds of things are very different from here. And, you know, we may or may not agree with it, but that's the, the way it is. And hopefully it will change in time. But uh, we have to be careful not to cause people to lose face. And it's not just being embarrassed. That's what I learned. Uh, your whole ability to function in the culture and your family is damaged. So in education, one reason people don't ask questions is if the faculty member doesn't know the answer, they can lose face. So you don't want to do that. Or if you ask a question, it may imply that the faculty member wasn't clear or didn't do a good job, and they may lose face. And it may be seen as criticism. So, you know, those are kinds of things we don't naturally think about. Also, there are cultures uh, in Asia and uh, some other areas, like um, I think parts of the Middle East, where they have these kinds of proverbs. You know, the nail that sticks up will get pounded down. You don't want to stand out. They don't encourage competition. To be on the top is to, you know, kind of make the rest of the group shamed or uh, longest blade of grass is first to be cut, or the goose that honks gets shot. I like that one. <laughs> but, you know, basically they've been taught all their lives, you don't ask questions, you just accept it, you're respectful to your teacher, and that kind of thing. So it's very hard to change to an interactive system when that's what you've had all your life, and that's what the leaders expect themselves, you know, that they've earned this hierarchy or this respect, and, and they don't want to change it. So let's uh, go back to the case study. Why do you think you, you would uh, judge this educational system to be outdated and poor? And what may have led to your assessment? Maybe you didn't, but that's the case. <laughs> yes? Well, I think one of, one of the concerns is that um, if it's purely lecture, then they're not developing critical thinking skills. Right. That's definitely true. And we value that, right? We want people to think individually. And in healthcare, we often have to think individually when we're seeing a patient. But that's not valued in healthcare. Right. Right. Critical thinking isn't valued or encouraged. And it may lead to punishment or, you know, being looked down on. Good point, yeah. Yeah, education can be more uh, transmission of content rather than relational. We, we want to make it more relational, but that's not always the intent. And uh, one of my colleagues who taught for a while in Singapore, he tells this story about one of his residents who came up to him and said, I know the answer, I know it's right, but I don't know why. You know, and if it doesn't follow what they memorized or in the book, 
it's very hard for them to know what to do because they're not used to saying, well, this is sort of similar to this and maybe I can try this principle. And uh, it's something that takes a long time to learn. And actually we're working in, in the Balkans in a country where it's not encouraged. And uh, senior medical students and young graduates don't have much practical experience even in you know, doing a case presentation or differential diagnosis, how to pick treatment options. And uh, we have an American family doc there who partnered with uh, one of the uh, doctors there who came here on a Fulbright and got a master's in medical education. And they wrote a book together called Doctor Detective. And it's really to teach critical thinking. And, I mean, who doesn't want to be a detective, you know? So the students really took to that, or these young people. And they, even by themselves, they wanted to have this critical thinking club, and they came up with that. So, you know, especially when you're working with younger people, it is possible to start new methods. It's harder with uh, older people because uh, we've always done it that way, and, you know, who's going to tell us to change it and, and that kind of thing. There are exceptions, but this, these are generalities. But the other thing is when something's different, sometimes we consider it bad. You know, it's not just different, it's wrong or it's bad. We should do it our way. Uh, this is called negative attribution theory. And it basically comes out of the fact that when something's different, we're kind of, you know, out of sync. We don't really know what's going on. We've, our equilibrium is disturbed. And to get it back, we need to infer something about it. Oops, sorry. And... Uh, we typically, instead of saying, oh, it's different, isn't that interesting? If for some reason, we always take the more critical side and say, oh, this is bad. They're not doing it our way. Why don't they learn, you know, that kind of thing. So we have to be aware of this because it's natural. I think lots of people do it when something's different, whether it's in our culture, in a class on Sunday school issues, you know, talk about different interpretation of scripture. But... Um, it isn't necessarily bad because it's different. And the most important thing is being aware of yourself. You know, you notice you're feeling that way. Why? Think about it. Uh, and is it really bad or is it just different? I know, uh, you know, when I moved home uh, after I retired from the military, my mom would always tell me I'd be cooking and she'd be like, oh, no, you need to use that pan or that pan. I said, Mom, it, as long as you get it done, it doesn't really matter which pan. It's different, you know. So that's a, a family issue as well as not just other countries. Okay, case study two. You visited a number of healthcare facilities in the capital of the low-income country and learned there's a desire for training and initial management of trauma. You meet with the leaders of the National Medical School and the Simulation Center and recommend advanced trauma life support be taught and offered to bring a teaching team to train the Sim Center faculty to teach it. The dean thanks you for coming and for your recommendation. Those in attendance discuss, your med discuss the medical school, their plans for the simulation center, and acknowledge trauma is a big problem in their country, and the meeting breaks up. However, there was no discussion about the training course you recommended or the idea of you bringing a teaching team to assist. And the dean tells you that they've decided to invite you to teach the course next spring. What happened here? It's kind of a perplexing situation. You left the meeting with no idea that the group had decided to invite the teaching team. So what could ex explain it? Okay, go back to the first one. 
Okay. Okay, we may have just said, you know what you really need? We've got the answer for you. We can fix you. You need advanced trauma life support. So we may not have said, what do they really need, even though we heard there was a, a problem with trauma, which is the main killer in a lot of countries. Yeah. It sounds like You know, is this helpful for you? And if so, would you like us to help you? And, uh, you know, there's a power distance thing and financial issue often with expats helping that uh, they may not want to say no. It may be impolite in their culture to say no to a guest. What else? There was probably some indirect communication that you missed somewhere along the way. Very good, yes. Many cultures, uh, a lot of the communication is nonverbal. You know, they know each other, certain ways they look or move, are actually voting yes or no, or, uh, you know, a, a lot of you are married, I think, and uh, I'm not married, but um, from what I understand, this happens a lot in marriage, you know, after you've been married a long time, you can kind of look at your spouse and you know if they're thinking this or they don't like that, or, you know, it's the same thing only on a, a societal level. They know how to interpret different postures or movements or some kind of signs that we're clueless about. And um, they know they did actually discuss it. You just weren't aware of it because it was all nonverbal. And uh, the decision was made. So this is a difference in what's called high and low context communication. Uh, we're generally largely low context. Uh, we want uh, people to say what they mean, be clear in their communication. Uh, do it verbally. And we have these kinds of sayings, you know, quit beating about the bush. Say what you mean. Get to the point. Time is valuable to us. And uh, when somebody's not direct, they're often perceived as negative in some way. They're shifty or they don't, wanna, don't want us to understand what's going on. So we have negative attribution in that setting. Where in a high context culture, which is really most of the world, Words are not as important. They interpret a lot of things in the context and uh, through nonverbal cues. Uh, and they often see being too direct as disrespectful. You know, only children talk like that, tell you exactly a specific thing or give you an order. Adults should be more sophisticated and discerning and not hurt anybody's feelings. Be careful how you say it. And it can even be seen as aggression. And uh, in uh, some cultures, it's been shown throughout their history, it's not safe to say to talk about things you don't like. Uh, you could end up in prison or dead. Uh, think about, it made me think about Russia, how it's going now, you know. If you say anything negative about the war in Ukraine, you may be in prison for 10 years, you know. So if you criticize something in the educational system, that may lead to a, a very negative outcome. Maybe it affects the... Ministry of, Minister of Health or, you know, the president isn't doing a good job. So it can be very risky in a lot of cultures where here it's pretty relatively low risk. So think about 
where you've seen these kinds of things, high and low context communication. I think marriage is probably a really good example. One of my professors uh, used to have to teach to all these big Fortune 500 companies about cross-cultural things, and, you know, they didn't really want to be there. They'd come in, you know, and be like, so it was like, oh, they're not really looking forward to this. So he'd say to them, is anybody in here married? <laughs> and they don't, you know, large number would raise their hand and he'd say, have you ever had any differences with your spouse? You know, you come from a family culture and it's a different family culture than your spouse. So even on that level, or even your siblings sometimes as you get older. So, you know, it impacts us too, but it's a much bigger thing in most of the world. And we don't get it a lot of times. When you've been there many years, maybe you will. But Okay, here's another one. You're invited to teach medical students about epilepsy. You explain the neurologic basis of seizures, how to detect them with an electroencephalogram, and suggest treatments for different types of epilepsy. You ask students to anonymously write down their questions, because they don't feel safe asking, on index cards and collect them. You find a number of interesting but unexpected questions. How do you treat epilepsy caused by a wizard cursing the patient? How do you know if your patient's epilepsy is due to a medical or a spiritual cause? How do you answer their questions? What causes epilepsy? Any thoughts? Yes, were you going to say something? Or are you just stretching? Yeah, it's true. We tend to de-emphasize any spiritual cause of anything, really, mental illness included. Um, in other cultures, it's spiritual to prove it otherwise. They're like, no, it isn't caused by what you eat or, you know, a bug, this little bug under the microscope. That's not the cause. And, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty major difference. And um, what does the Bible say about epilepsy? Can you think of any parables? Okay, yes. I mean, folk beliefs uh, are part of the, uh, what we're dealing with, but what causes it? There is, in the scripture, there is demonization causing epilepsy, and Jesus cast it out. He also cured people who it was probably a medical cause, but clearly it can be due to a spiritual cause right from the Bible, so we shouldn't discount it. Uh, of course, if you told your colleague that, you're a neurologist and you told your colleague that your patient's uh, epilepsy was caused by an evil spirit, they'd have a major conniption fit probably and think you didn't know what you're talking about. And we shouldn't do it lightly. But, you know, if it's not, if you try to control it with medication and it isn't controlled or it's very unusual, it gives you some spiritual check in your body, 
that something's going on. Maybe it is spiritual, and you might need to involve, uh, you know, uh, ministry people, pastors or, or uh, people like that. Have any of you read this book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down? Good. If you haven't, I would read it. It's a great example. I always knew, not always, but I learned these principles about, you know, what the Bible says about things, epilepsy and things. But when I read this book, it really cemented how different our cultures can be. Like, uh, this is about a child who was in a Hmong family, H-M-O-N-G, who immigrated here and had what we would call epilepsy. But in their culture, they thought it was a spiritual gift. And so there was... uh, always a tension with treating the child should they try to stop the seizures uh, and take away this spiritual gift. And it shows a lot of the negative things that can come from that. And also things, you know, we would never even think with our patients. Like if you're an OBGYN, Hmong women, when they have a baby, they're supposed to bury the placenta under the house or bad things happen. Well, who even thinks of saving the placenta, much less giving it to the patient to take home and bury under their house? So, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of things. You won't know it if you see one Hmong patient, but if you're in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia where there are a lot of Hmong people, this would be an important thing. And then let's just talk about some educational considerations. We have about 10 minutes. We talked about some of these that, you know, we all have preferred uh, teaching styles depending on our experience and worldview and training. Uh, scheduling can be quite an issue. We didn't talk a lot about time, but uh, when we go to teach, we always have a schedule. You know, 8 o'clock, we start teaching, blah, blah, blah. But then when you get there, and at 7.55, somebody comes and says, oh, the president of the university wants you to come and have tea, you know, and that's happened more than once. And so you start late, uh, you know, different things come up. Time is very different in different cultures. And if you're going to work in other cultures, I'd really encourage you to try to learn flexibility with time. You know, I spent 26 years in the military, where if you're a minute late in the Air Force, the plane's in the air, you're on the ground, and you're in big trouble. So, you know, I had to work on it. But flexibility, I think, is the key to missions and many other things in life. And uh, we need to say it's not our plan. You know, we made a plan. We did the best we can. But God's in control, and we're going to go with the flow. We're there to serve those people, not meet our schedule. So that's an important thing. Uh, critical thing we, we talked about and uh, difficulties uh, on making changes, uh, helping each other versus cheating or plagiarism. Where we can, we should try to, in collectivist cultures, help people to learn and teach each other, not try to make them compete for the highest grade, for example. Grading is a big issue. It is here. Apparently, after everybody has to get an A, now I hear too, although I don't teach college here. But, uh, you know, even in collectivist cultures, that can cause a big issue, and it may not need to be discriminatory. You have a standard everybody's got to meet, and you help everybody meet it. You don't have to have some meet it and some don't. And uh, adapting, and then informed consent's different. You know, in a lot of collectivist cultures, the decisions made by the chief or the tribal leader or the brother or the father. And uh, that can be hard for us when we believe people should have their own right to decide for their body. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that the best thing is to ask the person, who would you like me to tell uh, the medical situation, uh, the results, and uh, decide what to do? 
And if they say their father or their brother or their husband or whatever, I don't see any problem with that. I don't personally like to assume it's going to be the father. Because things are changing and there are cultures where people are wanting to decide themselves. So this is kind of the, uh, the tension we have between passive teaching, which takes less preparation and is easier, versus participatory methods. Many places want to uh, become more participatory, and I think we're seeing it over time. Singapore, for example, has become a, a real leader in uh, medical education methods and things, affecting a lot of Asia in ways probably we couldn't. So there's pressure from other places and examples that will help. Uh, another thing I really think is important is thinking about using questions. People may not answer them or feel comfortable. Hopefully if it's a safe classroom, they might. But uh, just using a question makes them interact with the material, kind of focuses them on what they're doing, uh, helps them see, did I understand that? I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and uh, helps them apply it, even if they don't uh, discuss it. It can add fun. Some people like that. And uh, it's been shown to increase retention of information. And think about Jesus. I mean, he, t he asked a lot of questions. He often didn't answer people's questions. He asked them a question in return. And I think Jesus is a master teacher. There's several books about it. but And storytelling. You know, telling stories has a huge impact like that book. Uh, I studied under... Jim Pluteman, who is a, a very well-known professor of culture, and he always uh, liked to talk about the uh, double uh, rail fence, that there's the principles and there's how it's in practice, and you need both. In some countries, you give the principles, like here you give the principles, and they explain how it works. In a lot of cultures, you tell a story, uh, give an example, and then you bring out the principles, but you need both sides. And I think pictures sometimes can be helpful if you're a private pilot studying and they say, you know, it's a good idea to always be looking outside the cockpit, keep your eyes moving around, show a picture like this, they get the message pretty quick. <laughs> and a little about communication and language. You know, even English speakers often don't understand them, each other. One time I was in the UK and some of the shopkeepers I understood less well in English than I understood shopkeepers in Germany and German. You know, I was like, what language are they speaking? You know, and like in Australia, you know, they're, we're going outside to, to use the whippersnipper. It's like a whippersnipper. That's a wee whacker. Or, you know, different terms like that. So, you know, even though we think we speak the same language. And then with the accents, especially, you know, India, places where Pakistan, things where they learn English as a second language, that can be very difficult too, so... It's not always so easy to communicate even in the same language, and if you need to use translators and interpreters, it can be more difficult. So the goal is to get the information across, make it simple and clear. Don't use any fancy words if you don't need them. Uh, don't use examples they won't understand, like American slang, baseball terms, or if somebody came here and started using cricket terms, would you know what they were talking about? You know, so those kinds of things you need to avoid. Uh, hand gestures we talked about. Uh, if you need to use unfamiliar words, which you may, if you're teaching healthcare, you may need to, but be sure you spell them out or have them on the slide and explain what they are. And don't use an acronym uh, until you've at least explained it and put the acronym next to it. 
those of us who've been in the military are very familiar with acronyms. I think the Navy, in particular, they have acronyms like NAVCON, you know, like four words put together. But uh, we use a lot in medicine, too. Uh, translators, interpreters, you may need them in some countries. And uh, the difference, if you're not uh, familiar, is the translators convert your slides, the text, etc., where the interpreters speak uh, in that language after what you said. And uh, there are lots of situations where you'll need them. These are some. And with translators, you need to remember that you need to do your slides early enough for them to have time to do it. Uh, have them explain to you what they think it says. Uh, so you can get an idea whether they really translated it well because you don't know the other language or you would have translated it yourself. And uh, with interpreters, it's a similar thing. You need to meet with them before you talk, go through the slides, have them tell you what, what the slide means if you have the time, and uh, try to request a medical interpreter. You know, um, there are a lot of people who can translate language, but they don't know any medical terms. I was asked by... USAID to give this uh, talk in eastern in the eastern part of a country in Central Asia, and they gave me a Russian translator, but the Russian translator didn't know any medical words, so the translator would go for a little bit, or I mean the interpreter would go for a little bit and get stuck, and the audience would yell out the medical word because it was very similar, you know, so it was like tag team interpretation, but I'm not sure it was very effective in teaching. It was kind of fun, but, <laughs> but uh, you want to... And if, you're, if you can use any kind of allusions to the faith in your talk, if you can get a Christian ter interpreter, that's definitely the best. Uh, simultaneous translation, you can speak fairly normally. I usually have to try to talk a little slower because I'm kind of a fast talker. When I was in Texas, I was trying to sound like a Texan, and they said to me, if you want to sound like a Texan, you've got to talk a lot slower than you talk. So, you know, the interpreters have a problem with it, too. And uh, when you're doing alternating, don't say a whole paragraph and expect them to interpret it. You need to just say a sentence or a phrase. Give them time. And uh, looking at the audience helps if they're like, it's probably not getting across very well. You can get a lot of nonverbal feedback on that. Of course, they might be just falling asleep or something. Uh, so these are the key points. Uh, it's increasingly needed when we teach uh, internationally. Uh, you can improve uh, the presentation by making it simple and clear, uh, using medical interpreters and uh, trying to evaluate if the audience seems to be getting it. Uh, key takeaways is be aware of these kinds of cultural differences and how they can impact your teaching and your relationships, and uh, take, take time to uh, try to relate to the people. Relationships are the most important thing, even here, but in other cultures, uh, usually you don't just go in and start. You have to, like when we go to Mongolia, we've been, we've been going to Mongolia for over 25 years, twice a year. Uh, the first night is always inviting the people uh, who our team will work with to have dinner together Sunday night get to know each other a little, talk about what they want to do during the week. And that sets the stage to start, where if they just show up Monday morning, you know, it could be a real disaster. And we encourage people to keep going to the same country over and over. You know, some people have been there like 18 times, and 
they have really deep relationships, and uh, that's when you get more opportunity to share the gospel. You know, that's been, I don't have the reference, but I read somewhere that it takes about 100 uh, positive interactions with a Christian before a Muslim will even consider Christianity. So, you know, it's, it's a long-term thing. So, you know, we want to be effective cross-culturally, but remember, ultimately, it's prayer and trusting God for the results. He can take care of whatever we mess up, but we should do our best. And these are some good references, I think. Any uh, questions, comments, examples? Relationships are just key. And that's why, you know, because our teams for Medical Education International are pretty much one or two weeks, that's not very long uh, to establish a relationship and really uh, gain people's trust. And that's why a lot of the people do keep going to the same country because that's the most effective. Okay, thank you all for coming and for participating. Appreciate it. Oh, another good book besides these is uh, Leading Across Cultures. There's Teaching Across Cultures and Leading Across Cultures. Cross-cultural servanthood we give to all of our team members and cross-cultural partnerships.